My name's Bob Darrell, and God, am I alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm sober today only through the grace and power of God in the program, the people and principles, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to thank the committee for the privilege of coming down here and sharing my, my experience of the gift that you've given me in this room tonight. And I'd like to thank him for the flowers. I've, between the suit and the flowers, if I died tonight, I'm dressed for the part. <laughs> I got to get this out of my head because it won't, I can't start. What? Next year? Did I hear right? Next year, the spring fling is July. <laughs> this year, it's February? Huh. I, if you were to have a midwinter conference, would you have it in August? <laughs> They won't invite me back here. <laughs> I'd like to welcome anybody that's new. I'm real glad you're here. There's, you're in for a great weekend. There's a lot of great speakers here this weekend. Uh, some of them I've heard several times, and you're, they're great examples of Alcoholics Anonymous, not because they get up here and talk, but when they're not up here, they're, they're trying to help new people, and they're doing the deal. Uh, there's a big difference. Anybody can run their mouth in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's what you do when you get down from the podium that really counts. Uh, one of the guys I sponsor is here tonight, Dale. I wanted to mention his name, so if you go by the tape, Dale, and if you just take the part where I mention your name and you play it over and over and over again, you'll, you'll get real spiritual. Uh, uh, if you're new, I'm real glad you're here. i I got to tell you, there's a lot of hope in Alcoholics Anonymous for very hopeless people. And I am I'm the alcoholic talks about in the big book. It says I, I'm the alcoholic of the hopeless variety. Uh, and I, I think from what I've learned of alcoholism over the years since I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous, I've come to the conclusion that I was an alcoholic way before I ever took my first drink. I was like a freeze-dried alcoholic waiting for alcohol. <laughs> And I believe that. The big book says we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows. And you know, even as a young kid, there was just something that wasn't right about me. You know, I just didn't seem to fit in my, like everybody else seemed to fit. There was just something. And I didn't come from an alcoholic home. I mean, I was never abused. I was never uh, beaten. I was, uh, boy, I came from a home that... God, I look back after hearing Fifth Steps and Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, God, I was really lucky. I came from a home where I was loved and cherished and given tremendous opportunities. There was a lot of love and togetherness in our family. But there was something about me. I just couldn't feel it. I, w I think that I'm the guy they talk about in the big book when it says that at the root of my alcoholism, at the root of this spiritual sickness is selfishness and self-centeredness. And even as a very little kid, there was something wrong with me. Because I, I look back over my childhood, the only thing I can really remember is me. I mean, I remember all about me. I, you know, I, I can't tell you too much about what happened to my mom and dad or my sister unless it had to do with me. But I remember all about me. My mother used to tell me when I was a kid, she says, Rob, you're full of yourself. And I, I never, I didn't know what she meant until I got into AA, you know, and I'm trying to work on the third step. And it's all, yeah. Full of myself, yeah. When I was about, I don't know, three or four years old, on a Sunday afternoon, I went with my folks one day. We used to go everywhere together. We used to go to historical places, and just we, we were just a neat family. And one Sunday afternoon, I was going with my folks to this farmer's market, and my dad was excited because he wanted to go in there and buy this horseradish that he'd read about in, it, in the paper and it had won all these awards for being the hottest, hottest, spiciest horseradish around. My dad liked that kind of thing. And we're going into this uh, farmer's market and I'm hearing him brag to my mom about how great this horseradish is. And he goes in to get some of it. We're going out to the car and I'm tagging along. I says, Papa, can I have some? And he says, oh, no, Rob, you can't. It's, it's, it's too strong. It's too powerful. It's only for adults. Well, I'm the kind of guy that I may not really want something until you tell me I can't have it, then I just really got to have it. I'm just that way. To this day, I, I can't make it past a do not touch wet paint sign without going like this. You know? 
I don't know what it is about me. That's just my nature. And my, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind that I can't have this horseradish. And I waited till my folks weren't around. And I snuck in the kitchen, got the refrigerator open, got that jar of horseradish out, got a big spoon. I remember sitting on the floor of the kitchen. I took the lid off that horseradish, stuck that spoon in there, put it in my mouth. I, I think I saw God. I'm not sure. <laughs> Snot's pouring out of my nose and tears are running down my eyes. And I spit horseradish all over that goddamn kitchen. I was sick, sick, sick. Burned, sick, awful, terrible, miserable, pain, awful. That was over 40 years ago, and I'd have not sat once with a jar of horseradish and a big spoon, did not have to get a sponsor, go to no meetings, work no steps, none of that crap. But I got to tell you, square business. If that horseradish would have made me feel the way alcohol made me feel, I'd have spent the rest of my life making myself sick with that stuff every chance I could get. Because I was born with an incompleteness that I never realized I had until I found alcohol. I took my first drink of alcohol when I was 12 years old, and I gotta tell you something, I, prior to that, I would've thought my life was all right. But when I took that first drink of alcohol, it made me feel so good that the way I felt from that moment on without it was never enough again. And I lived for it. And it, I'll tell you, it was magic. I, I think, I think for me, and I think for a lot of us, alcohol really at one time in our lives is the most effective and immediate treatment for the spiritual malady of alcoholism I'll ever find. Absolutely incredible. I, uh, you know, I've had the experiences, and I'm sure most of you have had the experiences when alcohol was an effective treatment for what was really wrong with you, the big secret. <laughs> I can tell you a story when I was about ninth grade, when I was in ninth grade in, in school, one of the kids in the town I lived in had this big party. His folks went out of town. He invited everybody from the school there. And I'm going, it's a lot of older kids, some kids from my class, mostly older kids, and I'm, I'm going because that's the in place to go is this party. Everybody's been talking about it for a week. And I remember walking up to the front of the house, walking in the front door, and standing inside the front door of this big house and looking over in this one room, and there's a bunch of couples sitting on these sofas making out. And in this other room, there's a bunch of kids dancing. And then way back in the kitchen, there's a whole bunch of guys around this keg of beer, and they're laughing, and the laughter's rolling through the house. And you could tell they're having a hell of a time. And I remember standing inside that door with that sick, sick feeling of separation that feeling of loneliness, that, that sense that it's all of them and then there's me. Almost as if there was some impenetrable, invisible barrier between me and them that I could not surmount. And I almost ran. And I did, and I slunk around that house for a little bit, and a couple guys said hi to me, and I could barely even talk to them. I just felt so locked up in my head and just so lonely. And I found a bottle of 151 rum. <laughs> and some Coca-Cola. Man, after a couple drinks, I'm dancing, I got a girlfriend, I am connected. I can talk to people in there. Next thing I know, I'm out, I'm out with the guys in the football team around the keg of beer and we're like lifelong buddies. I mean, you know what I mean? Alcohol at that point in my life was a treatment for the soul sickness of alcoholism because when I walked into that party, I was sick of spirit and a couple drinks vitalized my spirit and brought me alive. It brought me closer to a sense of living and apartness that I, than anything I'd ever known. But unfortunately, my alcoholism is a disease of diminishing returns. And I, in the very beginning of my alcoholism, the, the book says it's a progressive illness. In the beginning of my alcoholism, there's a tremendous amount of fun and effect. I mean, it was awesome. I, I can't, I don't like, I hear people sometimes get up to the podium and bad rap alcohol. I mean, jeez, I, why, why do you beat a horse, a plow horse, because it gets too old to pull the plow? I mean, it was a wonderful thing at one time. But as the disease progressed in me, what happened is the ability to attain that kind of fun and effect diminished, and the problems increased. 
And by the time I get to start hitting Alcoholics Anonymous as a young kid, my life's a mess and I'm desperately trying all kinds of combinations of things to get that effect back and I can't get it back. And it seems, seems to be so slippery and elusive that I can't grab onto it like I used to. And I'm starting to, I'm starting to lose the good days. And I'm starting to drink more and more in isolation. I'm also the guy that uh, they talk about. I'm the real alcoholic. I, I'm the guy they talk about in the big book. And Silkworth talks about me. He says it better than anybody I could ever say it. I'm the guy that has the physical allergy to alcohol. I take a drink and something happens to me. I break out in what Silkworth calls a phenomenon of craving. That every drink I've ever taken of alcohol. And Silkworth makes an interesting statement in there. And I didn't see this until I was sober about 15 years. He says, guys like me can't safely use alcohol in any form at all. And I got to tell you, there's chemists as we sit in this room right now in pharmaceutical companies trying to come up with other forms of alcohol, things that will treat people like me when I stop drinking. Alternatives. Silkworth says we can't safely use alcohol in any form at all. And I can't. And I know I went through that deal. I, I can't do it. But I'm also, this phenomenon of craving is such a, a bizarre deal. You know, I, I, I started hitting meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, my first meeting of AA, I, was, I wasn't even old enough to drink. I was in an institution. The people that ran the place made me go to this AA meeting. And they knew something about me I didn't know. They could see the alcoholism in me where I couldn't see it. And I... Uh, I started going to these AA meetings and I'd start hearing people talking about the phenomenon, the craving in the first couple years I was around here. And um, I didn't get it. I, I don't have a craving. I mean, I drink and I get drunk, yeah. But so do everybody I know. Everybody I drink, drink I, I know drinks like that. See, Silkworth also says to us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And the odd thing, you know, I'd seen the movies, The Days of Wine and Roses and The Lost Weekend, and I couldn't, I couldn't see that I drank and just clawed the walls for a drink, got a craving. I didn't get that. But you know, the funny thing about a craving is you don't realize you have it until it's interrupted. <laughs> Everybody in this room tonight, you're not aware of it, but you're in the grip of a craving right at this moment. And you don't know you're in the grip of it because it's not interrupted. But that's the craving to breathe air. If somebody would slip up behind you right now and stick a plastic bag over your head, you'd instantly realize you have a craving to breathe air because the craving would be interrupted. As long as I could satisfy the craving to drink, I never knew I had it. That's why it was so hard for me to see that I had this phenomenon of craving because I, I always protected myself from situations where I could only get two drinks or three drinks and they couldn't get any more. I would never do that. And I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the years I'm in and out, between 71 and 78, and I'm sitting in this meeting listening to a woman share her experience, and all of a sudden a light goes on. And I remember something that had happened to me when I was about 17, 18, probably about 18 years old. Now you've got to understand, when I was 18 years old, in my mind, there is absolutely no way I could possibly be an alcoholic. I'm going through my long-haired, better living through chemistry phase of my alcoholism, right? But, but alcoholism doesn't care how long my hair is, you know? If you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, whether you believe you are or not. And I was an alcoholic. And I'm dating this gal, and she invites me over to her family's, her parents' house for dinner. And she wants me to meet her mom and dad. It's going to be one of those all night sit there with the family kind of deals. You know, I kind of hate stuff like that. I just Because I'm always self-conscious anyway. But I'm, I go and I'm trying to be a good guy. And We get to the dinner table and they bring out this bottle of wine. Now, I'm not talking about a big bottle of wine. I'm talking about a little bottle of wine. And they bring out this bottle of wine. They start pouring glasses of wine. And I drink quickly. I, I've always drank quickly. I don't know if evaporation is a childhood issue for me or not. I don't know. But I always drank quickly, and I always drank with a sense of urgency. And because I drink like that, I've killed two glasses of wine. They're still sipping on their first glass, and the bottle's dead. And I'm sitting there. i got two glasses of wine in me. 
I don't know anything about alcoholism or phenomenon of craving or none of that crap. I'm sitting there with two glasses of wine in me and I want another glass of wine. And I finally said, I said to him, I said, boy, that really was good wine. They said, well, that's, do you have any more? They said, no, Bob, we don't. They went on to talking and I'm sitting there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm beside myself. I'm beside the group. There's a whole group all of a sudden in here trying to figure out what's wrong. And it's, you know how you talk to yourself in your head? It's getting panicky in here. Just, and I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what's happening to me. I feel awful. I want to get out of there. I don't know what's, I'm just crazy. I finally blurted out, sure like beer. <laughs> they said, they said, Bob, we don't have any beer. We're sorry. The next time you come over, we'll get you a six pack, anything you want. And they went back to talking about Vietnam and sports and all this crap. And I got two glasses of wine in me and I'm sitting at this dinner table and I'm stuck there for the rest of the night. And I think I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And I don't know what to do. I excuse myself. I go to the bathroom. I lock the door like a crazed maniac. I go through the cabinets in there. Found a bottle of cough medicine, 35% alcohol, codeine and terpenhydrate, which is a plus. <laughs> Sat on the edge of the, of the bathtub, chugged that bottle of cough medicine, and instantly developed what it talks about in our 12 concepts. Singleness of purpose. <laughs> All of a sudden, all the voices in my head are focused, they're real, they're just all, it's like the whole committee just got on the same page at the same time, you know? And we're going to get out of there. And I went back out to the dinner table and I had this plan I, my, that my head came up with about this thing I forgot to take care of that was real important. I was real nice. I said, God, I'm so sorry. I forgot it's late. I forgot I was supposed to be over there and take care of this. And they said, well, we're sorry. You have to go and come back and do this again. Yes, we will. And I got out of there. I got in my car and I drove like a gentleman 20, 25 miles an hour down to the end of their street, turned the corner and like a maniac drove 70, 80 miles an hour to get to a friend of mine's house who had an old open bar in his basement because I had two glasses of wine. Now, I was the only person at that dinner table that was alcoholic. Those other people who had been alcoholic, we'd all been in that goddamn bathroom looking through those cabinets. <laughs> but something, something happens to me that doesn't happen to normal people when I drink, and it never, ever will. Silkworth says that this phenomenon of craving differentiates us and sets us apart as a distinct entity. The average temperate drinker never, ever experiences that thing that happens to me when I have one or two drinks. And I, I didn't understand that. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978, and I had been bludgeoned by the pain of my own experience into knowing that I, that I was one of those people. I couldn't have put it into words. I hadn't read the book. I couldn't have said phenomenon of craving. I couldn't have said physical allergy. But I knew that I was one of those people that when I take a drink, something happens to me and I can't stop. I knew that. I knew that because I all the false, vain, vain attempts to try not to do that, I could never not do that. There's a test in the big book. If, you think, if you're not sure if you're an alcoholic, there's a test in chapter 3. It says, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go over to the nearest bar and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Well, that's not a good test for a guy like me. I'll tell you why. I would go to the bar I would on the intention, I'm going to have two drinks, stop, that's it, show you I'm not an alcoholic. After about the first halfway through the second drink, it would become real apparent to me that this is not a good test day. This is, it's, it's a good test. It really is a good test, but this is not the day for the test. Uh, because, you know, because Joe just came in, and, and oh, and there, and there she is. She, you know, she's always there. I mean, and I would never take the test. Because something happens to me when I take one or two drinks that just changes and it gets my own mind against me. See, my mind goes with it to defend it. And I have a, a, an incredible ability to rationalize and justify. There's a line in our book that says the alcoholic's problem lies mainly in his mind. This is the only disease I know of that if you have it, it uses your mind against you. And the problem with that for a guy like me is that when I'm scared and I'm threatened and I feel less than and I'm having a bad time at life, the first thing I want to do is think. I just go up, I retreat up into this like control center up here where I, where I like, I feel safe and protected, where I could kind of run the universe. And it's, it's sort of like 
the bridge of the enterprise where I have, you know, I have these screens and I put up everything, the stuff they said to me yesterday, and then another screen projecting what I should say to them, and then what they would say to me, and then, and then I got all my staff up there, the little committee running around. I got Mr. Spock, who's very logical, and, well, Bob, we should do this, and then they'll do that, and then I got, then I got Scotty, who always wants more power, and I got, I, <laughs> I got, I got th this guy like Bones that just goes around and he says, well, Spock, that's really great, but let's have a drink. You know, or it's, just, it's always the one, it's all he wants, one drink. So if my problem's mainly in my mind, I am in a lot of trouble because I'm a deep thinker. And there's a lot of deep thinkers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have this, I spend most of my life between my ears. No wonder. No wonder most of my life I don't feel like I fit out here, you know, because I, you know, the truth is I'm not out here, I'm up here. No wonder life seems so distant and remote from me because I'm internally focused, I'm self-absorbed. I'm self-centered as the book would call it. Wrapped up in me. And that's a bad deal if you're an alcoholic of my type. Because I stop drinking and I, I just go right up in here. And I'll tell you what happens to me is I go up here and I turn around with all the fears and anxieties and everything. And I, eventually I just can't stand it anymore. I just can't stand it. And I start to, and I did this for years. I get abstinent for a while. And then there's something in me that just wanted, that felt like I just needed to break out. Like I'm trapped somehow. And if you would ask me, what do you mean trapped, Bob? Hey, you're not trapped. I couldn't have explained it, but I felt trapped. And you know I was. I was trapped up in here. And then I could have four or five shots of whiskey, and whiskey would relieve me of the bondage of self. Four or five shots of whiskey, I could come out and play. Four or five shots of whiskey, man, I could, I, I'm not lonely anymore. I can come out and talk to anybody about anything. Because four or five shots of whiskey and also assorted drugs I would throw into the mix were a treatment for my alcoholism. <laughs> but I got this phenomenon of craving and I come into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978 and I, hear, I finally start hearing people talking about it. Yeah, I got it. When I was a, a year sober, I couldn't get a job anywhere else. And a guy, I got a job as a cashier in a store and one of the things they sold in there was liquor, right? <laughs> Now the book says, my alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Everybody that comes in there, I think, I, I, if they drink, they got to drink like me, right? What just amazed me, I would see these people come in there and they would order like a bottle of wine for a dinner, little one, like for a dinner party of four. It's like, why? Or a six pack of beer for the weekend, you know? I mean, <laughs> I used to think, did my sponsor put them in there to, to send them in there? And I started realizing that most people don't, don't drink like us. And I don't understand it. I started to think, I thought to myself, well, they, they must surely get that thing, that fired up feeling of wanting more that I get when I drink. But for some reason, they can control it, and I can't. Silkworth says that is absolutely not the case. They never even get it. And I'm four and a half, four, four and a half years sober, and I finally understood what he's talking about. I'm dating this gal that's not an alcoholic, and we go out to dinner, and she'd order a drink. I swear to God, it would take her a half hour to drink one drink. I mean, she'd take a sip, stir it, talk for 10 minutes. Forget the drinks there. Did you ever forget your drinks there? I did never forgot your, my drinks there. I know where my drink is. I know where your drink is. I, you know. You can see the ice melt right before you. That's like alcohol abuse. I asked her one, I asked her one time, I said, Have you, were you, did you ever get drunk? And she said, yeah, I was drunk one time in college. I didn't like it. She told, she told me a story that blew my mind. She said that, she was at this party a couple months prior and somebody had given her a marijuana cigarette from Thailand and she took two hits off of it and she was saving the rest for New Year's Eve, which is like eight months off. Right? Uh, it's not her fault. She seems to have been born that way. The whole... 
the whole time I, I knew her, I never saw her finish two drinks. I, I saw her several times order a second drink, and she would start to drink it, and she'd drink a half of it or a third of it or part of it, and she'd do the most crazy thing you've ever seen. She'd push it aside, she'd say, I don't want it anymore, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> It'd be easier for me to have sex and after two strokes say, I don't want any more of that, I'm starting to feel it. It would be to do that with two drinks of alcohol. And I, start, I started to realize what Silkworth's talking about. You see, my friend, when she pushed the second drink aside, she's not trying to prove a point to me. We can all do that. You know, when you're... When you're girlfriend or boyfriend's on your case about your drinking, or your boss is on your case, or your folks is on your case, or your friends are on your case about your drinking, on a rare occasions, we can go out with them and have two to show them. Can't do it a lot, takes an extreme effort of will, and usually we got to go get lit up later on that day. My friend was not trying to prove a point to me. You, you see, when she took two drinks, she got a feeling like she's losing control. I take two drinks, I get a feeling like I'm getting control. It does something fundamentally different down to the core of who and what I am. And it never, ever does that to them. Never. And they look at us and they can't believe why, they don't understand why we drink the way we drink. And we look at them and God, we can't understand why they drink the way they drink either. It's, uh, their drinking is as baffling to me as my drinking was to theirs. Even though... I sensed by social standards that their drinking was more appropriate. It still was so baffling to me and so incomprehensible. I have never, ever had a social drink in my life. I have never once had the experience that social drinkers have on a regular basis. Al-Anon's probably have this all the time. That's to be in a bar, be drinking for a half hour or so, have the bartender go by and say, Bob, would you like another drink? And sit there and think, no, this is just right. <laughs> Never been just right. I've been close. Oh, I've been so close. Oh, I, I've been so close it made me crazy. I know, I'm convinced on the next drink I'm going to be there. I just, but I'm never there. But I get so close it makes me nuts. It's almost. It's like, it's like heaven is just always two inches beyond my fingertips. But I get so close. And, uh, if, that, if that was all there was to alcoholism, then maybe in 1971, as a young kid, in an institution, when the evidence was presented to me that I was destroying my life through the use of alcohol and other chemicals, I would have walked away from it and said, you know, you're right. Because I could say that. I could say, yeah, you're right. You're right. I can see that. I can see that. And I, I'm one of those guys that from 1971 to 1978 was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've sworn off and meant it with every fiber of my being, and I keep going back to it. And I keep going back to it because there's another aspect to this disease, and it's what kills guys like me. It's what killed my real close friend, Frank, with the 24 years of sobriety, put a plastic bag over his head and took his life. It's what killed my friend, Mike, that seven and a half years put a pistol to his head last couple months ago. It's what kills a lot of us. Silkworth says that, uh, that we are people that when we stop drinking, we become restless, irritable, and discontent. And for all practical purposes, my alcoholism starts where the bottle ends. It is in the state of separation, in the loneliness and desolation of abstinence that I become driven insane that I become so insane, and I'm not talking about doing screwy things or punching a cop, that kind of insanity. I'm talking about the kind of insanity where I become so self-absorbed and so lonely and so desolate and I can't tell anybody and I'm so locked up inside myself that I go so nuts that I will go and I will pick up something that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is, is going to destroy me. And I'll do it whether I'm on paper and I'm facing time in prison. I'll do it if I'm in, living in a halfway house and it's the middle of winter in Pennsylvania and there's snow on the ground and I have nowhere else to go and that means I'm going to be walking the streets. 
I will do that because I, don't, I can't not do that. I can put it off for a while. But when I stop drinking, the minute I lay down my last drink, the further I get away from it, the more progressively restless, irritable, and discontent I get. And if you don't know what that means, restless, it's like, it's like wherever I am, it's not the place. You ever watch a dog that just circles a room looking for his spot? I'm a dog who can't find his spot. There, wherever I am, this isn't really it. And I'm antsy all the time, and I'm nervous. I mean, I think I was that ADD before it came out. I mean... <laughs> I'm irritable. You take alcohol out of me, away from me, and you don't medicate me, and life just kind of rubs me the wrong way. It irritates me, and I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to mix with people. I'm, I got too, I'm too, got too much fear going on. And I, and I get uptight around people. And what I do is I either, I either get so cocky and defensive that I, and, and assertive that people can't stand me, or else I get so withdrawn and locked up inside my house in my, in my own head that some psychiatrist is diagnosing me as clinically depressed. Because I'm, I've almost become catatonic. I go in here, and I think sometimes for some self-centered alcoholics, we can go in here too long and stay too, go in too deep and stay too long. And it's hard to come out. And then the last thing that Silkworth says is discontent. And I think alcoholism is a disease of chronic malcontent. I, uh, I got to tell you that my whole life, and I'm sad to say this, and I think this is one of the points that differentiates me from non-alcoholics, people who do not have the spiritual malady of alcoholism, my whole life prior to the point in Alcoholics Anonymous where I started sponsoring other people and caring about them, prior to that, I cannot tell you one moment in my life where I ever felt that things were just right. Not once. Not once. There was always something missing. There was all, and I could, most of the time I couldn't have told you what it was. It was always a vague sense of incompleteness. A vague sense that there's something wrong here and I don't know what it is. And I, if you're an alcoholic of my type and you have the spiritual malady that I got, alcoholics of my type develop the when eyes. It's like I'm not happy now, but when I get the promotion, when I get the relationship, when I get the do, 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 whatever it is, and then I get those things and then that's not it either. So it's, there's another when eye right behind that one. And I'm never happy. I think to have alcoholism like I have alcoholism is... It's like, to, it's like being doomed to walk through life with a stone in your shoe. But, you know, it's a tiny stone. Just like a mild, vague irritant. And it's just like, it just gnaws at you a little bit. You don't know, sometimes you don't even know where it's coming from. You take your shoe off and, and you brush it out and put it back on and there it is again. It's back. And if you're like me, you start going to foot doctors and foot clinics. And you find a doctor to anesthetize your foot, and then the anesthetic wears off, and there it is again. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, a victim of the second delusion it talks about in Chapter 3, and it took me 15 years in here to realize the truth. Now, that delusion, as I thought, the delusion in the book says that uh, the delusion that we are like other people, people that don't have alcoholism, or that we presently may be, like maybe, you know, 20 years of sobriety, you'd think, has to be smashed. I came in here with the delusion that after I, maybe when I finally work the steps just right, or when I do that inventory and uncover the thing that I could never get at, or when I have that ultimate surrender, unlike the other 400, <laughs> that all of a sudden I'd find my place self in the place where the stone would be removed from my shoe once and for all to never return. And I've come to understand that alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous is not about that at all. That I have a condition called alcoholism. And what Alcoholics Anonymous is not about, it's not about getting a stone out of my shoe, it's about hanging out with dozens and dozens of people that all have stones in their shoe and I get so caught up listening to them whine about their stone in their shoe <laughs> that for long periods of time I don't realize I have one in mine. But I got to tell you, if I, change the, if, my, if I change the focus again, back on to me, you know what happens? The stone returns. Uh, one of the earliest examples of that I ever, I ever found here is I was sober 
in the first couple years, and I, I was working as a cashier in this store, and I, was, I came off of work, and I was on my way to a meeting, and I, had a, I was having a good day. You know one of those kind of days where you're not overly irritable and people aren't bugging you, there's no big problems, nobody's trying to repossess the car, I mean, the IRS is leaving you, I mean, it's just a nice, nice day, there's no problems, I feel good, I'm going to my meeting tonight, I feel a sense of being a part of AA, I walk into the meeting, the meeting's about to start, there's this guy, Wade there, Wade comes up to me, he says, Bob, Bob, how are you doing? How are you really doing? The meeting started and I sat there and I thought, God, what's he know? You know, I, I might be, I'm, God, I, I, don't, I don't feel very good now that I think about it. I, I thought I was having a good day. I must be in that denial thing they talk about. I, God, that job I had that I thought was so wonderful, now, I can, now that I can see the truth, they're taking advantage of me there. And, and I, and I could look around Alcoholics Anonymous and I could tell by your faces, you're all doing better than me. You know, you're all kind of, everybody's getting laid here except me. I mean, it's, everybody's got great jobs. Everybody's making a lot of money. Everybody's, and I could just, I picture myself up, God, I'll be, I'll probably be sober 30 years. I'll die alone in a rocking chair eating Alpo, you know, just. Um, and what changed? What changed? Nothing. Except this. I stopped getting into you and being present here in my life and I started getting into me. And I went back in here. Bad place to go. Bad place to go. A friend of mine says it's like a bad neighborhood. You should not go there alone. I don't even want to go there with reinforcements. <laughs> it's a bad place. The mind is a, is a wonderful tool. It's, it's a great thing to remember addresses and add, subtract, all that stuff. But it's an awful master because it is a fear-based mechanism. At least mine is. My, my head is just all about, what if, Bob? What if? What if? What if? <laughs> you take out. It's just nuts. I have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I found... I found it not a solution so much as a treatment, an ongoing treatment. Every day is the day in which I must seek God's will. I must seek a vision of His will. And I got to tell you, this may say, sound arrogant to you, but I know what God's will is today. And it has nothing to do with me. It's about me caring about you. It has all to do with my perspective. I have a choice every moment of my life to get into you and be helpful to you or to get into me and feel the pain of separation. Every moment of my life, I have that choice. And uh, I was, you know, I, my sponsor, I got a fanatic sponsor who uh, got me into the big book in early sobriety, and he was really, he was very, very active when I was new in AA, and he was, he was real prominent in, this, in my home group, which is a floating big book group, and it's a pretty serious big book study group. And my sponsor went through a kick where he had me reading page 60 through 63 of the big book on a regular basis. And I, I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's, I, I got to tell you, until I could see myself in that part of the book, I didn't have any hope. I had no idea what my alcoholism was about. Up until that point, I didn't, I, there was no steps to work because I had nothing to work the steps on. Except alcohol, and the steps aren't designed to be worked on alcohol, they're designed to be worked on alcoholism. And I started reading that book, and in that book, it in the book, in that section, it talks about the actor who wants to run the whole show. It's forever trying to arrange the lights, the scenery, the ballet, the rest of the players in his own way. It talks about selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. And I would read that and go to my group and look around the group, and I could see how people in AA were like that. <laughs> yep. Just became so clear to me how you guys are trying to run the show and you're very self-involved and you're just and there's a line in the 12 by 12 it says that we are quick to see our defects of character in others before we can see them in ourselves and that I, I could see that you were self-centered and that you were trying to control the, the universe and you were running the show but I could never see it when it was me because when you're doing it you're running the show when I'm doing it, I'm just trying to make things nice. I mean, it's just, it, 
and it's different. <laughs> and I was having a day, I was having one of those kind of days when uh, nothing, I used to have them a lot in early sobriety. One of those kind of days when I just, I'm just in bad spot. Nothing's going my way, life's irritating me, I'm restless, irritable, discontent. I'm at work, the customers are all bothering me, they all want attention, my boss doesn't appreciate me, the other employees are not doing their, pulling their share of the load and I'm doing all the work and it's, I get off work and I'm going out to this meeting where I'm the secretary and I'm in a hurry and I gotta stop and get some styrofoam cups at the grocery store and I get in the night items or less line or some woman with 13 items in front of me and I, you know, and I'm like, I'm like a pressure cooker getting ready to blow up and I'm just, and I'm so locked up in my head just, and I'm driving to the meeting and there's some little old lady in front of me going five miles below the speed limit and I'm in a hurry on a mission from God, you know, and I want to run her off the road thinking I'll, I'll run off the road. We, both, we might both be killed, but she'll see, you know. <laughs> I'm just nuts. I'm absolutely crazy. I'm getting to the meeting because I'm meeting a new guy there. I get there early and the newcomer's there. I, may, I show him where to sit. You sit there. And I, the, the two, I wait for the right two people to come in. I get the perfect people to chair the meeting so my newcomer can, can hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous just right. And I, I told the chairperson, we're not going to read chapter five. We're going to read chapter three. I got a new guy here and he, he just goes, whatever, you know. And, I'm, I just I can picture the new guy taking his year cake, mentioning my name. Uh, the meeting starts off. The chairman asks if anybody have a. It's a discussion meeting. Does anybody have a subject? Somebody raises their hand and starts talking about shooting heroin. Somebody else in the meeting jumps up and says, "You, this is alcoholics anonymous. You can't talk about that." Somebody else jumps up and tells the other guy, "You can't tell him what to talk about. This is alcoholics anonymous." And it's like. It's like the meeting from hell, you know what I mean? It's like, it's awful. And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just up to here, you know? I'm just up to here, I'm fed up. By the end of the meeting, I throw the literature in the bag, storm out of the meeting, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna quit alcoholics. I'm, I'm the only one here that knows the truth and does it right, I'm done, that's it. I go home and like Pavlov's dog, I call my sponsor and he says, read page 60 through 63 of the big book. I open the book and oh no, oh man, oh it's me, oh it ain't you, it's me. And I, for the first time in my life, I started to see what the problem was. And I started to get a glimpse at at why my life has been screwed up all these years, drunk or sober. Actually, my life is worse sober than it is drunk. I'm one of those kind of guys I stopped drinking, and people that have known me for a long time say things to me like, oh, we liked you better when you were drinking. And it, it might have been somebody I robbed, and they'll still tell me that. We liked you better when you were drinking. I'm so restless, irritable, and discontent. I get so uptight when I just stop drinking. I can't talk to anybody. I don't mix very well. And I, and I found in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I found a treatment for what happens to a guy like me when I stop drinking. And I desperately, desperately needed that. If, if there wasn't something here that I could eventually, and I was willing to tough it out, but if I couldn't find something here that would eventually give me the same thing that I found in alcohol, I probably wasn't going to be able to stay here. Because I'm one of those kind of guys, I stopped drinking and abstinence is a very painful place for me. Abstinence always felt like I was doing time. I, I love W.C. Fields, he says, I was sober one time, it was the most boring 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> And what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a process that's designed to do a couple very simple things in my life. It's designed to, it starts in step three after I finally surrender to the first two steps. And in step three, I make a decision. I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. A God that I really don't even know for sure is there. And when I was new in sobriety, I'm talking to this old timer, and I, I, I said, you know, I, I, I don't believe in God. I, I don't know if I, I don't think I can do this. I'm a, kind of a, 
I don't know for sure there's not a God, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think I can do a third step. And he said, Bob, he said, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. He says, if you'll turn your will and your life over to that chair there, I guarantee you an instant miracle. Being a wise guy, says, oh, yeah, okay, I turn my will and life over to the chair. What's the miracle? He says, the miracle is your life's no longer in the hands of an idiot. <laughs> I thought, yeah, yeah, he's right, yeah. You know, if you'd have followed, I'll tell you, if you'd have followed me around the last couple of years, probably most of my life, the last several years I was drinking, it for sure, and watched me, you would, you would have easily come to the conclusion that whoever's making decisions for this guy is out to kill him. <laughs> but from inside me, in this, inside the control room, with its infinite ability to justify and rationalize, it never looked that way to me. I'm just trying to get along. And I never saw how I created the separation. And so to get my help, if I can start by getting my life out of the hands of an idiot, and then starting in step four, to start doing the process that's designed to change my attitude about other people. And I'll tell you what I found was the exact nature of my wrongs. It was my judgment. It was my judgment of other people and other things in life itself. I had my resentment list, I, was, I had all these judgments where I was prosecutor, jury, and executioner of all, in my mind of all these people. And you know something, I never gave one of them a fair shake. I never did, in my whole life, I'm too busy noticing what's wrong with them, trying to pump myself up. See, there's a, I, I always got a, a, an ego-feeding deal out of resentments. It used to make me feel smugly superior that you could be such a jerk. You know what I mean? And I could think to myself, God, what, a, what an idiot. I'd have never done that. As if I'm, and I pump myself up with that, right? When the real truth, and I didn't see the real truth until I followed the fourth step out of the big book, and there's a part in there that says, this was our course. We must realize how the person who had harmed us was perhaps like us, spiritually sick. And I had to put myself in their shoes and see how in every case, if I was afraid like they were afraid, if I was frustrated and lonely like they were frustrated and lonely, if I was raised like they were raised, if I was influenced by whatever they're taking, how I could have easily done to someone else what they'd done to me. And to get off my high horse and stop playing God. See, I think the separation between me and other people is the separation of playing God in my life. My sponsor used to say that to me in early sobriety, and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I would come to him with, with all these resentments. I'd have lists of people that are screwed up, you know, and people at work that aren't working and they're stealing, they're coming in late. I'd have lists of people in AA that, oh, she's, she's just looking for a husband, and he's selling Amway, and, and he doesn't put any money in the basket, and, and she's cheating on her husband, and just on and on. And my sponsor would always say the same thing to me. He'd say, you've got to quit playing God. I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. I'm not playing God. What are you talking about? I couldn't see it. I was playing God. I'd climbed up on a throne of judgment trying to validate and pump myself up by finding out what's wrong with you. It's like the dumbwaiter effect. I'll pull all you down hoping that it'll level the playing field and I'll come up and be even. And all it ever, ever did for me was make me feel more separate and alone and more like I don't fit and force me back up into my head where the throne, the seat of the throne of judgment exists. I read, a, I, some of you may have read the, the, the book Dante's Inferno. There's a line in there, as Lucifer as casts himself out of heaven, he, he shouts out the curse. He says, I would rather reign in hell than rule it. Or I'd rather rule in hell, than, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And I've got to tell you something. When I'm reigning, when I'm sitting up on that throne playing God and judging my life and trying to run the universe, it's about as close to hell as I'll ever find. And when I'm serving and I'm here just to help you and I've put, got me out of the way, that's about as close to heaven as a guy like me will ever find. And what changes except my perception and my actions and Alcoholics Anonymous has really helped me on an ongoing basis to reduce the separation between you, between me and other people. And I was so, so very wrong in my judgment about everybody. 
and I and I started to process of making amends to people and, and to clear away some of the stuff and and I I had a my sponsor would not let me slough off on anything in amends and I had to make amends that people told me I didn't have to make them and he made me make them anyway. I went to I'll tell you this one this one little thing. I went to my father and mother when I was about it a little over I guess somewhere in the first year or so of sobriety and I owed my father a lot of money I mean a lot Se a couple several thousand dollars now I'm only making three dollars and something an hour right that is a lot of money to pay back and I, so I got my game plan I'm sitting down in this coffee shop they flew out from Pennsylvania I'm sitting in this coffee shop the day before they return home and I got my list of everything I owed him all the money I borrowed off him over the years to pay rent to stay out of jail etc 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 and I said, I said, Dad, I'm going to start paying you. I'm going to pay you so much a week out of my paycheck. And I'll never forget this. He looks at my mother, and he grabs her hand, and he kind of smiles at her, and he says, Rob, he says, we don't want you to pay us. Uh, we've watched you. We've gone to your home group. We've watched you hang out with your AA friends, and something's really different. We came out here thinking it was another facade, like all the times you'd call us from places and tell us you turned over a new leaf. But you really are different. Something's happening in your life, and we are so happy. We just want you to keep doing what you're doing. Just keep, just be sober is enough for us. You don't have to pay us. We don't want you to pay us the money. Man, I tell you, I, I walked out of there. I was on cloud nine. I thought, I like this immense stuff. This is, <laughs> this is good, good deal here. Good deal. And I'm on my way over to my sponsor's office to tell him the good news, you know, kind of fantasizing about other people I owed money to. Maybe I'll tell my secretary a meeting or something, you know. I get over to my sponsor's office and I told him, I said, my dad, God, he says I don't have to pay him the money. It's really great. And my sponsor says, I don't care what your dad said. He said, this isn't his debt. This is yours. You've got to pay him. Man, I'll tell you, if there's ever a time I wanted to change sponsors, it was right about then. <laughs> So I don't know what to do. I, I can't, I don't have the money. If I send him a check for $25 or $20 a week or whatever the deal I could afford, he's not going to, it doesn't going to mean anything to him. He's not going to cash it. And I didn't know what to do. And he says, well, he says, you got to ask God to show you how to do it. He says, he says, in step eight and nine, there's my business and there's God's business. It is my business to make the list and ask for the willingness. It's God's business to provide the willingness. It's my business to make direct amends. It's God's business to make it possible. And he said, if you ask God, he will show you a way to do it. And I, you know, the funniest thing, it just came to me one day. I'm at, I'm at work, and I'm running this cash register, and I, there were some silver coins in the till. And my dad was obsessed with, he was a coin collector. That was his great, that was, that was his alcohol, right? It was his big obsession. So I made a deal with my boss to start taking out all the silver coins and the old silver certificates and gold certificates and war nickels and all that stuff out of the register and put them aside and at payday I would buy them out from the store and then I would save them up and it took me over four years to save up at face value what I owed my father and I was able to give it to him and he wouldn't send it back. He couldn't send it back. It had been like, it had been like a cocaine addict giving away a rock, you know what I mean? It, 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 my dad couldn't have done it. And I got, I got to tell you something. Uh, about six months after I made that amends, and me, my dad and I were 100% even, my father died. And I was able to fly back to Pennsylvania and be there with my mother and sister and bury my father, and we were even. There was no unfinished business. And I know what it's like when my grandparents died, we weren't even, and I lived with the ghosts. And if you've ever had somebody die and you're not even, you know about the ghosts. The ghosts of, man, I wish I would have told them I loved them. The ghosts of, I wish, with my grandfather, the ghosts of, God, I, I wish I would have somehow made it up to him for getting into my, his wife's Demerol the night before, uh, before they buried her, and they found me with a needle in my arm laying in a pool of blood on the morning they're burying his wife of 60-some years. I wish I could have made that up to him. I wish I would have thanked him for all the things he did for me when I was a kid. I wish I could have undid the hurt. I never could do that with my father, I was, or my grandfather. I was able to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book says, I got it right out of the book, it says some people can't be seen, so you write them an honest letter, and I was able to do that with my grandfather and put that to rest. But with my dad, when I buried him, there was no ghosts. We're even. 
And I'll tell you, and I, I never expected this to happen. One of the things my dad left me when he died was his coin collection. <laughs> Square business. And I, I don't, I, I can't, rem I can't remember once through that whole process of saving that stuff ever thinking, oh boy, this is going to be mine. I, now, I don't know if that thought might have went through my mind or not, but I can't remember ever focusing on that at all. I was focusing on clearing away the wreckage. I was buying the debt and owning it. I knew that I owned it. And I think sometimes for some of us, we sell our self-respect and our integrity down the toilet a nickel at a dime at a time, and sometimes we've got to buy it back a nickel and a dime at a time. And the greatest amends I've had to make are the ones that take a long time, and that is hard for a guy like me. Because I want the instant gratification. I want to be able to write the big check and have them say, Oh my God, Bob, you've really turned over in a leaf. What a nice guy you are. Pat me on the back. But to have to give them $20 a week or set it aside and save it, or there's not a lot of glory in that. But there's a lot of integrity. There's a lot of integrity. And I, uh, I, I've gone through a lot of stuff in sobriety. I, I've, you know, I've been sober almost coming up on 21 and a half years. And I... I've been through everything I think a person can go through. I've had to bury a lot of people that were very, very close to me. and uh, went through a very painful divorce at 11 years sober. And uh, if it wasn't for the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as they're outlined in, the in that book, you'd have a different speaker tonight. Uh, I don't think those steps are for what happened to me when I'm drinking. I think I need those. I think I do everything in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's like forging a weapon. And I go, and a day in and day out, I go to the detoxes. I listen to the fifth steps. I get down on my knees and pray. I do inventories. I talk to my sponsor. I get on committees. I do everything in Alcoholics Anonymous day in and day out for long, year after year, periods of time. When it seems like, why am I doing this? Everything is fine here. And it's like I'm forging a weapon that one day I will need that my very life will depend on. And I've had that happen to me three or four times since I've been sober. But if I had done anything less in sobriety than what I did, I would be a dead man. There's a, I've watched, uh, there's an epidemic that's been happening in our area. And I've talked to, I travel around the country a lot. And I notice, I notice also that it happens in a lot of other places. There's a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that are sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at 10 and 15 years sober that are dying of untreated alcoholism. And some of them are committing suicide. And some of these people are people I've known and really cared about. And some of them are getting on pills, which is an alcohol in a different form. And eventually it leads a lot of them back to drinking. And I see something happening sometimes in AA that's frightening. There's a, you can come into Alcoholics Anonymous and, and when you're new, if you're like me, you're very desperate. And desperate people take desperate measures. But that, the, the bad news about Alcoholics Anonymous is if you do AA and you make AA the center of your life, what happens is you get relief from alcoholism. In the third tradition, the long form, it says, the only, it says membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to relieve the suffering of alcoholism once you stop drinking. The problem with when you reduce my suffering, sometimes you reduce my motivation. And what I see happen on a regular basis is I, I see guys come into AA in their first year of sobriety. Boy, they act like somebody who's really got alcoholism. I mean, they're calling their sponsor every day. They're going to eight or ten meetings a week. They're writing inventories. They're making amends. They're on committees. They're secretary meetings. They're going on 12-step calls. They're sticking their hand out to newcomers. Then at four or five or six or seven years sober, they got a great marriage and they got a business, got a new car. Got their first home, and they start getting a sense that, well, there's not really as much alcoholism here as there was a few years ago. Doesn't feel like it. And they start walking that walk into diminishing, return, diminishing amounts of recovery. I go to a meeting, I've gone there for over 21 years at a Skid Row Detox in Las Vegas. The, the, the meetings, the place has moved, and I have two commitments every week at a, at a detox. And I see something in, in Las Vegas 
that you may not see here in your groups. And what I see is I see the guys with 15 and 20 years and 25 years of sobriety that relapse. And the reason that you may not see those people in your groups is that they never get far enough back into AA to ever be part of a registered home group or be that connected. What happens is they end up in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in St. Vincent's and West Care and the Salvation Army and they go in that cycle they just die until they eventually die on Skid Row. And I'm not, I'm not talking about you know, bums here. I'm talking about guys that were sober 15 years that were attorneys. I'm talking about guys that were a guy that was the largest painting co contractor in Las Vegas. I'm talking about people who were at one time were predominant members of society and sober active members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they got lulled by the fruits of their recovery into a false sense of okayness and stopped doing the deal. And if you're an alcoholic of my type, the minute I stop treating the disease of alcoholism, it's like lighting a fuse. The problem is I don't know how long the fuse is. I don't know if it's a three-year fuse. I don't know if it's a five-year fuse, or I don't even know if it's a three-week fuse. But when I stop treating the disease of alcoholism, I stop trusting in God, cleaning house, helping others. When I stop making this the center of my life, and the job, or the big house, or the trips to the Caribbean, or the marriage, or the business, anything else becomes the center of my life. I stop treating the disease of alcoholism. And I don't know when the fuse is going to get to the end. But I, I believe with everything in me, if I am the alcoholic that it talks about in the big book, that that will happen to me. And I watch these people die on Skid Row, and I watch the people that relapse with years of sobriety, and I, I believe in a proposition that if I have the same disease that they have, what can happen to them could happen to me. I am not so arrogant to think that I'm bulletproof or it couldn't happen to me. It could happen to me. See, I, I, and I, I've, I've watched guys, I, I just had this conversation with a guy, broke my heart. I, he's, he was a, he's sober about seven and a half years and he stopped going to meetings. He pops in once a month to show people his new car, that kind of deal, right? You know what I mean? And I said to him, I said, why don't you go to meetings anymore? And he says, I'm too busy, man. I got, I've got this business over here and I got this marriage and I got the little league and I got all this stuff. I said, well, that's great, but don't you understand? Alcoholism is unforgiving. It doesn't, alcoholism doesn't care what you got going on in your life. It's, it's like diabetes. How, can a diabetic get too busy to do his insulin? It doesn't matter. He may be too busy to do his insulin. He's still going to die. Right? It doesn't make any difference. And he says, oh, no, I know I'm an alcoholic. I'm taking care of my recovery. I'm concentrating on not drinking. I'll tell you something, when my recovery gets back to concentrating on not drinking, I am in a lot of trouble. I am in a lot of trouble. When my recovery starts getting back to me fighting the bottle, I might as well throw in the towel because I can, I can only fight the bottle for so long. My fuse eventually gets to the end and I pick up a drink because alcohol is more powerful than I am. I cannot fight the bottle and win. I never could. I, uh, I'm, I'm real glad to be here tonight. I, I got to tell you, I, 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 felt, I felt weird coming up here. I was tired. I, I had to fly down to L.A. last night and give a talk, and then my plane was late coming home. I didn't get home until like 1 o'clock in the morning. I had to get up at 5.30 to come down here and pack. And I've been doing a lot of this stuff in, in AA, and it, sometimes I feel like I'm a homeless guy living out of a suitcase. You know, I just... But I have spent an hour up here thinking about the new people that are here. And that is an hour where I've been useful. If I have helped no one else, it has helped me to think of you rather than to think of me. And I, I get relieved of the bondage of self in Alcoholics Anonymous by those kind of actions. And I desperately need that. And I, there's a line in our book on page 20, and it, it's a very powerful line. It says that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others, their needs, and how we can work for them. Constant. I can't do constant. I mean, I'd have to, I think Al-Anon's can do constant. I can't do constant. <laughs> I can do, I can do occasional. I can do frequent. I can do every day a little bit. 
But it's every day a little bit. If I, if I can get a couple hours every day where I'm answering the phone and talking to the guys I sponsor and going down to detox or sharing my experience in a meeting, and I have a couple hours every day when I'm concerned with you and I'm not concerned with me, my life is very, very good. And if I stop doing that, it doesn't matter how much abundance I have in my life. And I have an abundant life. I know, also know what it's like to sit in, a, sit in a huge home on a hill with a brand new Jaguar and a Corvette and two Harley Davidsons in the garage and sit in there and die of alcoholism, spiritually. I know what that feels like too. <clears throat> because I'm wrapped up in me. And you are the answer. And uh, I want to thank you for the bottom of my heart for my life. Thank you.